Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. We often think of schools as places primarily oriented towards the cognitive development of children. However, we also know that schools are important sites where students begin to develop an understanding of various social and cultural norms. Some of that learning occurs from the curriculum, but it also occurs from peers, teachers, and other experiences. In this program, we'll learn about a nonprofit organization in Southeast Ohio, the Appalachian Peace and Justice Network, that tries to embed social-emotional learning more directly into schools. My guests today are Mara Giglio, director of the Appalachian Peace and Justice Network, or what I sometimes refer to as APJN, and Dr. Jennifer Seifert, who directs the Sexual Assault Prevention Program, which is a specific affiliate program program within the APJN organization. Mara and Jennifer, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. It's my pleasure. Um, so Mara, let's start with you. I've known you for a long time now, and I've heard your story before about how you got involved in APJN, but can you start by just telling the story of how this organization was created and then sort of how your involvement came to be? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we started back in 1984. And uh, it started as primarily an activist organization where people were going out into rural areas and seeing what their concerns were and helping connect them to other concerned citizens to help them be more effective. Um, And then when I came on in 99, it was about 50% activism and 50% prevention. So conflict management, peer mediation, violence, and bullying prevention. And um, then I just really wanted to go deeper. I wanted to deal with the root causes of militarism and violence. And so we kind of, now it's about 80% prevention and 20% activism. And when you say militarism and violence, that can mean, you know, probably a lot of things to a lot of different people. Can you maybe talk a little bit more specifically about what you mean when you say that? Well, um, we're dealing with um, child abuse, we're dealing with drug abuse, we're dealing with very unsafe situations for children. So we're trying to address those causes and build up the um, uh, nonviolent responses to conflict so that people can deal with things that, um, in ways that their families haven't necessarily taught them. Mm-hmm. Now, when I first met you, it was because of a program that you were doing in one of the local schools. And that's really, uh, I think, been a large part, though not exclusively all of what APJN has done in Southeast Ohio. Can you talk a little bit about some of those school programs that you've been involved in and, and what it, what it's been that you tried to accomplish and maybe even some of the techniques that you've used? Great. Um, well, I started back in 99 at Amesville Elementary and worked there for 14 years. Um, we were um, getting training from the Ohio Commission on Dispute Resolution and Conflict Management, which is a statewide organization, um, on creating comprehensive conflict management programs in schools. And so I was going across the state training teachers and bus drivers in these programs, and then I wanted to go deeper in one school in rural Ohio. So I was already working with Amesville, so I got um, a $12,000 grant to offer our services for free because it's very hard to find funding in these areas. So we always write the grants to provide um, free services. So a comprehensive program means that we're reaching into the curriculum, the pedagogy, the school-wide programs, um, basically trying to reach the entire school, the entire school body um, to um, bring all of the conflict management, peer mediation, bullying, and violence prevention programs to all of those different areas. Mm-hmm. 
Very good. Uh, Jennifer, you're more recently involved in the organization. Can you talk about when you became involved? And also, you're being the project manager of a very specific uh, program within the Appalachian Peace and Justice Network. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. Well, the sexual assault prevention program has actually existed in the area for quite some time. In 2012, I think it transitioned from Tri-County Correctional, or sorry, Tri-County Counseling Center, and then moved to APJN. So the program has existed for quite some time. I recently joined in November as the sexual assault prevention coordinator, and that's been great thus far. That's just kind of been um, my capacity, and a lot of the work that they did uh, before I came on was to help organize the Athens Rock Camp for Girls, uh, and a lot of other, uh, the Safer Spaces campaign, and now we're kind of transitioning into doing a lot more work in the schools, Mm -hmm. and that's the big part of my focus and my kind of interest in making the position kind of my own um, in my areas of interest, so K through 12. Now, when you're talking about uh, sexual assault prevention in schools, Mm -hmm. um, obviously you're dealing with the subject matter that is uh, more... Uh, tense, I guess, is yeah. what I would say. How, how do you how do you scale that across age groups in ways that makes you, the children, uh, the families, the teachers feel comfortable? Yeah. So one of the ways that we do that is you'll notice kind of my title proper is the prevention programs manager. And one of the ways that we try and address that kind of sensitivity of the topic is that we have a program that's called Ally, which is Partners in Positive Relationships. And then we have the Sexual Assault Prevention Program. At their roots, we really talk about the same thing. But one, we frame it in terms of healthy relationships. And the other, it's much more sexual assault prevention. So what we do with younger folks, younger students, is talk more about Mara's areas of expertise, like um, peer mediation, conflict resolution. And then it's in middle school and then high school is primarily where we do the healthy relationships in terms of romantic relationships. So once students are starting to um, think about uh, sexual activity and are addressing those topics in their health classes. That's where the sexual assault prevention work more comes into play. But sometimes we don't always uh, approach organizations or school districts as the sexual assault prevention program, knowing how charged that phrase can be. And that's why we kind of have the two um, programs which have the same goals. And a lot of the content is the same, but it's about being strategic about the organizations that we approach and uh, approaching people kind of where they are with this topic. So the sexual assault prevention work ends up being a lot of college populations, um, fraternities, uh, places like that that are really interested in that very specific idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then when we go into schools, we like to talk more about healthy relationships and what those look like, um, which is a little... Uh, less risky, I think, for all involved, the teacher, the mm-hmm. school district, the parents, um, everybody. So we don't try to be confusing by having the two different programs, but, um, you know, it's it's just a, an attempt to try and make our programming uh, accessible 
to a wide audience. Well, and, and relevant to right. where the students are at developmentally. I mean, sure. the, you know, the fact is they do start becoming sexually active, you know, once they get to a certain age. Right. And that's being responsive to that. So over the course of, of both of you answering those questions, we've we've learned about um, maybe with the older uh, students, the, the idea of sexual assault and sexual activity being part of the domain that APJN tries to um, be a part of. Um, but we also learned about maybe in the younger kids that there are things like bullying uh, and, 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 you know, conflict situations like that. What, what are sort of some of the, the things that you are trying to address? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty broad, right? What, what are some examples of, you know, when you go into schools or when you're doing your training, what is it you're trying to help kids get through from that social, emotional um, mindset? Well, um, the research says that if you have more empathy, then you are um, going to be less involved in conflict with each other because you care about each other, so you don't want to be in conflict. So um, basically, we are building empathy skills. um, We are building impulse control skills, problem-solving skills, anger management skills, because if you have more social-emotional skills, then um, you can effectively reduce um, violent outcomes, mm-hmm. violence in your life. Mm-hmm. So Mara, um, as you talk about that, of course, a kid that is in Southeast Ohio is going to be facing those issues on in one level that's different, but yet in some ways similar to a kid that would be in a very metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. As we think about Southeast Ohio, are there things here that makes the situations that you're trying to work with unique, maybe from some other geographic settings? Um, Jennifer had a great answer oh, to this. Yeah. Jennifer, <laughs> you go ahead. start us off. And uh, well, so when we how we understand violence, a lot of times from the a public health perspective, is thinking about the protective factors and then also the risk factors that might increase the likelihood of violence mm-hmm. um, being present or it occurring in in someone's life. And in this area, we have a, a higher incidence of uh, issues such as poverty um, and substance abuse, which are both risk factors. And there's also, depending on the type of abuse you want, um, geographical restrictions and transportation that will limit someone's ability to not only get education, but seek services when they are having problems. And those issues seem to be um, really concentrated in these rural areas in which we primarily do a lot of our work. Yeah, so that's why we um, never charge a school um, if they can afford it, of course, but usually they can't. So we are trying to write the grants, uh, get individual contributions for these schools, go in, offer our programs free of charge. And we try to go to where the students are. You know, we know that there are transportation issues. So we go out to Trimble, Amesville, Alexander, wherever, Federal Hawking, wherever Mm -hmm. we need to go to to reach the students um, where they're at. So let's say that I'm um, a principal or a superintendent of a district here in Southeast Ohio, and and I worked with you to get a grant for you to come in and do uh, your programming in, in um, you know, my elementary school. What type of a curriculum would you try to bring in, and how would you shape that curriculum towards my students, and, mm-hmm. and what could I expect maybe that we would get out of having you in there? That's a great question. Um, the first thing I always do when I gain access to a school is I set up a committee. 
So I get the principal, the school social worker, the guidance counselor, teachers, students, parents, whoever I can to be a part of this uh, decision-making body so that we're starting with, you know, democratic principles and uh, do a needs assessment. What are the issues in the school? Is peer mediation the best program? Is uh, uh, conflict management the best program? Is it bullying prevention? Basically try to, um, you know, figure out what needs they have and what our best curriculum is going to be for them. Now, I recall at uh, Amesville that you were able to create a peace tower. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that? Well, that was really fun. Um, We had a group of peer mediators, and there was a little $500 grant that um, we found. And I asked the peer mediators, what do you need? What would make your program better? And they said, we need to be up above um, the playground so that we can see what conflicts are happening. So we need a tower. We need some place to, you know, have private mediations on the playground. So that was their idea. They drew the picture. Um, we got a builder to come in and build it. And then it actually came down because um, there were different codes for what you could and could not build mm. on a playground. So it's not there anymore, but we have fond memories. <laughs> and it was really fun to work with the students and think about, you know, what did they think they needed? And I thought that was a really interesting approach. Yeah, a really great example of a responsive curriculum mm-hmm. where yeah. the students could say, this is what would yeah. really help us. Now, Jennifer, as you're working with um, perhaps a bit older uh, mm-hmm. students, sort of the same question. If I was a high school uh, principal uh, and wanted you to come into uh, my high school setting to talk about some of these more sensitive issues, what could I expect to have happen? So first, we um, use a uh, established curriculum safe dates, which is for intimate partner violence, but it's tailored. Uh, the version what we end up using because we have to condense a lot of the material. Uh, oftentimes, these curricula are, you know, say, 10 week or 15 week. And so we're having to make pretty strategic choices about what to include and what not to include. But first off, I kind of talk to the teacher, find out what are your students experiencing? What are your needs? Primarily, I go into health classes. So a big conversation that I have is, uh, what does your health book say? How can we make sure that these um, ideas are kind of uh, in concert with one another? And a big one that we get is responding to things that aren't in the health book. So particularly media literacy and sexting are two topics that um, I keep uh, over and over. Uh, Health teachers are like, you need to address these issues. And there's not a ton of curricula uh, based on those topics alone. So it's always kind of a find out what it needs the health teachers experiencing and what they think needs to be addressed. Um, And then addressing kind of the core of what we talk about, intimate partner violence and sexual assault, but then also how um, sexting and media literacy play into these kind of cultural ideas about how intimate relationships commence and proceed. And that's what we're kind of trying to undo uh, in some ways of the cultural stereotypes we have about how boys are supposed to be in a relationship and girls and how romantic love is supposed to, you know, correct all 
problems and um, you know that that if you love somebody then you know there there won't be those issues or if you just love someone enough that will fix you know these problems that you might be experiencing so yeah I think the the issue of social media is is really fascinating and as you mentioned sexting is something that you know mm-hmm. parents and teachers have to worry about now right how you know as you as you've been as you have been talking with students um, how do you talk to them about their use of social media? Because, you know, it's not like a switch that you can turn off. I mean, they're constantly on it mm-hmm. and they're constantly uh, posting and, and consuming. Um, so when you're talking about issues of media literacy related to social media, especially in this world of of intimate personal relationships, I mean, what what is the advice on how you maintain a healthy relationship in this social media world where there is simultaneously a more frequent connection, but also one that almost feels like it's um, a fake in some ways. Mm -hmm. So we, there's, you know, our our curriculum kind of goes in a series. And before this, you know, before we have the sexting lesson, we've talked about consent and media literacy and healthy relationships. So those are all kind of units that we've Mm -hmm. um, established kind of the concepts and and done activities. So one of the activities that I do about sexting and then even just more provocative posting of pictures on social media is we do this pros and cons um, activity. And so first I have the students come up with a story, right? So come up with a story um, about sexting or people posting these provocative pictures because I want to get an idea of how you're understanding. Um, Someone I think that can appreciate narrative. Mm -hmm. There's uh, quite a bit of power in how the stories people tell can tell you a lot about how they are thinking about something. So we start with that activity and the students almost always have um, very negative stories to tell about, you know, they shared a story or shared a picture and then it gets leaked to everybody and, you know, you kind of follow that sequence. And so a big part of what I try and do is complicate that conversation for them to talk about the pros and cons of sexting behavior or posting these provocative pictures and to highlight the the big legal consequences from them at this age, but also to highlight that that issue goes away once they're adults, the legal component. But there's Mm -hmm. still all these pros and cons that you're going to have to negotiate as an adult and think about consent and your boundaries and what you're comfortable with and what that's going to look like in a healthy relationship to you later. So the big story they have about sexting right now, it's illegal, it's child pornography, and that's in some ways an important story for them to have, right, to understand. Mm -hmm. But they have to think about what might this, you know, social media or what might technology, what role is that going to play in a healthy relationship for me later on? And that's what we're hoping, you know, to equip them is is not only now, but also later on. Now, Mara, so so in younger age groups where you might have cyberbullying mm-hmm. start to manifest itself, you don't quite have the same narrative that this is child pornography. You can get arrested mm-hmm. for doing this, but but it has very definite social consequences for the students involved. How do you talk about that in you know it, in the context of bullying and and unhealthy personal but not intimate relationships? Well, we just did a lesson at the Plains Elementary on cyberbullying, um, and 
basically they see an example of somebody getting bullied and it doesn't look good. It feels really bad. And all the kids are like, oh, that's horrible. You know, so we kind of build a camaraderie about that is not okay. That's not cool. That's hurting somebody's feelings. And what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do for a bystander to cyberbullying? Because it's really those bystanders Mm -hmm. that often have more power to do something because they're not the direct target of it. They're not in shock. They're not afraid, as afraid sometimes. So we really try to empower those bystanders to step up and make some changes, some positive changes. Mm-hmm. And just your personal opinion, because so, I think that's fascinating, and I think you're spot on, that that if you're trying to combat what is a public display of bullying and, and sort of one that's, a, a, that, that's forever there, you know, because it's in mm-hmm. social media, yeah. it, it really is the people that are witnessing it that the burden is really upon them. Um, so your own opinions, if I'm that bystander and I have an obligation, a moral obligation, and I, and I get it that I need to say something, does that happen through social media or does it happen in person the next day at school? I mean, I don't know what I would tell my daughter in that instance. Well, so when we, we give them scenarios often and then we like to present them with a litany of strategies Mm -hmm. and how you might intervene. And we even talk about the difference between uh, an intervention strategy that might be appropriate for doing on social media and then one that might be more appropriate in person Mm -hmm. because that um, you – you know, even the medium can restrict an appropriate um, response in this situation. So we try and use examples of – you know, this situation, what are some of the possible strategies? And so I guess my opinion would be that, like, in so many instances, it really just depends. It depends on the situation. And sometimes a response on social media can be very appropriate. But other times, um, you might have to go beyond that that mm-hmm. medium. And with most of the students we're dealing <clears throat> with, uh, they at least in their stories, have told us a little bit about some bullying with strangers and um, some inappropriate behaviors, but primarily the people they're interacting with are their peers from school. And so in in those cases, I think a a dual approach of both addressing it on social media and then also, you know, in person is appropriate Mm -hmm. because that's how they're experiencing that, which might be different than, say, an adult who gets, you know, pummeled. They make a comment on Twitter and then all these people are kind of, you know, flooding in to comment is – a different type of experience than these students are having, I think. And, and one thing we talked to kids about is, um, you know, using an approach that they feel safe with. Mm-hmm. We don't want them to get into harm's way. So they have to think, you know, is this a safe approach? Do I need some help? Which, you know, what's, what's going to um, resolve this in a positive way? Mm-hmm. So, Mara, um, in, in hearing you talk about, both of you, the types of things that you're trying to combat, it's clear that... Um, the primary purpose uh, of your programming is to help students develop skills that will have them have more maturity in the way that they engage the social emotional environment of their schools and their mm-hmm. families, et cetera, their communities. Yeah. I, I've heard you talk before, though, that there are, are also other important benefits that you think come from the training and the skills development. You have things related to creativity, problem solving. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? 
Um, and then the other word I would use is critical thinking mm-hmm. skills, is that when I got into this work, um, I quickly realized how much work there was and that we needed to build capacity. So I need to work with youth. I need to help them think about social justice issues um, in a critical fashion, um, develop that empathy so that they are propelled to act for each other, creativity, critical yeah. thinking. I mean, then there's you know there's impulse control, which is hugely helpful. Um, for academics, you know, that social-emotional skills help people deal with the anxiety of a test Mm -hmm. or solve a problem so that they can focus on school. Mm -hmm. So it's all connected. So what's an example um, from both of your experiences of of something that you would be doing with students in a school that would maybe also promote creativity, for instance? We always do poster projects at Mm -hmm. the end of the 23-week curriculum. And so it's a time where they can uh, make a bullying prevention poster, a sexual assault prevention poster, something that um, they've taken what they've learned, they've made their own message, and then they're putting it out to the school. So they're actually becoming um, uh, advocates in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So one of the things that I've also been interested in is that you know, in hearing both of you talk about this, you, you've talked about how what you you are trying to do links to the curriculum that is present in the schools. And of course, we all know that the schools now are largely driven by the Common Core. Uh, it's largely driven by mandated learning objectives. Uh, and as a result of those and the tests that accompany them, um, I often hear the story from teachers, I don't have time for doing extraneous things because I have to get students prepped for the quote-unquote state test, right? Mm-hmm. How, how, when you're talking with uh, you know, schools and, and districts about how what you're doing is so important, how do you talk about it in a way that makes them feel comfortable that it's, it's linking to augmenting and or even promoting the curriculum that they're required to teach? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my arguments are much more direct because uh, I've got a little bit of legislative support. Um, in Ohio, there's House Bill 19, which was passed in 2010, and it mandates that in 7th through 12th grade health classes that uh, intimate partner violence has to be addressed in the curriculum. How it's addressed is open uh, mm-hmm. to interpretation, but often that's my in, I think, with a lot of health teachers is I, I basically can approach them and say, you know, this is part of your curriculum. Is it something that you're comfortable teaching your students? And oftentimes they will invite us in because it's a difficult topic and they have a, a, a relationship with these students and they find that it's easier um, to let us come in and, you know, we have a, a little more um, experience in talking about these pretty controversial issues. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the angle that I've taken recently has been this legislation, but um Harvard School of Education recently published a report that was a survey of 3,000 students nationally um, under, and they were 18 when they were surveyed, but it said about 67% of those wished those students wish that they would have received healthy relationships training at school, that parents would have talked about issues like consent and love and how to have healthy relationships. So that is certainly going to be incorporated into my um, toolkit when I'm having these conversations about the value of of this work, um, you know, seventh grade upward. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I often talk to teachers um, about, you know, there's so many classroom management issues that come out throughout the year that if you do some upfront training, if you are training those kids to resolve their own conflicts, then um, hopefully you won't have to be intervening as much. So if you put in a little bit of time up front, it, you're going to have less, um, let, you're going to have to deal with that less as the year goes on. Yeah, sort of a time on task thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So we heard about, um, so we know that the hidden curriculum and being able to get it actually inserted into the curriculum is a challenge that you mm-hmm. face um, and some creative arguments that you're yeah. using to do that. <laughs> We've heard about uh, state or is it federal regulations on playground safety that brought the Peace, pa- peace Tower down. I think that was a state thing. <laughs> state mm-hmm. thing. What, what are some other challenges that you've encountered with the, the work that APJN is trying to do, and how have you overcome those? Um, I guess sometimes we have discomfort with content, mm-hmm. um, you know, specifically LGBT issues. Uh, it is a part of our ethos to um, create safe spaces and safe schools where everybody is welcome. So we are very LGBT friendly. Um, I've had some teachers that, uh, you know, maybe their religion is, says very differently. Um, I had a teacher where I, I taught a class and it was all um, about supporting GLBT students and not bullying them. And after the class, this teacher told me she was really uncomfortable with what I talked about, and um, she actually called in sick the next day. Hmm. So then I gave it a couple weeks, and then I went back and talked to her and just um, tried to hear her perspective and share mine that, you know, it's just we have to create a safe space for all kids. We know we've got LGBT kids here. It is our duty. And um, just kind of repaired that relationship a little bit and she did let me finish the curriculum. Um, but it just people's own really deeply seated personal stuff can sometimes get in the way of supporting all of our students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you, I mean, just out of curiosity, have you also encountered um, a more patriarchal, this is, you know, this is not the type of way that I want my young man (laughs) to be raised? I mean, do you encounter that type of stuff? What I do love about working in elementary school, I primarily work in elementary Mm -hmm. schools, is um, they're uh, really led by women. Mm -hmm. Most women are, most teachers are women, administrators I've worked with are women. So, but then you have different styles within the female gender of, of, you know, some are more authoritarian and some are less. Mm -hmm. So definitely there are some teachers that are saying, you know, this is top down. We don't want to train them. I'm in charge. Um, If they get out of line, I'm going to yell. And we're just saying, if you want something else, we're here to provide you training in that. Mm -hmm. The the barriers that I I typically experience have to do with the topic and, Mm -hmm. and how provocative it is for a lot of people. And, uh, that makes it a great risk for the teachers that invite us in. And so if I had to kind of talk about any of the barriers, it'd be probably just the the home-based state, uh, the nature of the school system in Ohio, and that each school district can be quite different in mm-hmm. how they um, define the curriculum. And then you have to almost have support at all levels so that the teacher feels supported, and particularly then when you add in very provocative topics like sexual assault, intimate partner violence, it's it can be perceived as very risky. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our biggest barrier, um, at least 
in the work that I'm doing with the older kids is um, being very transparent about what we do, um, fielding parents' questions, because uh, it has happened. A student emailed the health teacher, my student was talking about sexting in class. Can you explain um, the learning outcomes here? And off went my lesson plan. And, you know, it was uh, trying to provide that level of transparency. But it's just um, when you have provocative issues with the older groups, mm-hmm. it, that kind of is a challenge in and of itself. It's kind of embedded in the topic. Um, I think it's a little more challenging with adults mm-hmm. than it is with students. Yeah. We, I think we get the most blowback from adults. Yeah. And I guess that's worth pointing out. I mean, we've mm-hmm. been focusing really on schools because of the topic of this program, but the training that the two of you provide and the types of dialogues that you lead isn't just limited to schools, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do work with fraternities and sorority because of the you know, presence of the mm-hmm. university, but we've, I also was, it was at a school, but it was a Tri-County Career Center had their future fair and they wanted uh, some curriculum that we might have had some experience on. And so I did consent and sexual harassment in the workplace because those two ideas are very closely coupled. Mm-hmm. And so I'm teaching at least high school students in that capacity, but um, you know, talk to adult pop- populations about workplace issues, um, and then more community type um, interventions, and hope to soon have a conversation or do a workshop on how parents can communicate with their children about mm-hmm. these issues. Uh, not just the birds and the bees talk, but also sexting and some of these more difficult like conversation. So we like to work with diverse um, populations, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to work out at HAPCAP, Hawking Athens Perry County Action Program out in um, Gloucester. And they have a summer work program for 16 to 24-year-olds. So I partnered with Athens Area Mediation Service and provided training to all of those um, youth mm-hmm. and older, mm-hmm. young adults, I guess yeah. I should say. Mara and Jennifer, thank you so much for spending your time uh, today talking about the Appalachian Peace and Justice Network. What what you're doing with students in Southeast Ohio is is extremely important uh, because it not only is going to help them develop socially and emotionally, but also is an important part of their academic preparation for uh, continuing to develop as students. The Appalachian Peace and Justice Network teaches classes using the award-winning evidence-based curriculum called Second Step. Second Step is a bullying and violence prevention curriculum that is internationally used, reaching 9 million children at 25,000 schools in 26 separate countries. Second Step teaches social and emotional skills to prevent bullying, violence in schools and communities. It teaches children skills and empathy, problem-solving, impulse control, and anger management. Backed by over 30 years of research, Second Step programs has been shown to reduce aggressive behavior and peer rejection across socioeconomic backgrounds. And in fact, the most recent Second Step study, which appeared in 2005 in the Journal of Applied and Developmental Psychology, found that in schools using Second Step, students were 42% less aggressive, required 41% fewer adult interventions for minor conflict, and teachers indicated a 78% improvement in student social competence. You can learn more about the Appalachian Peace and Justice Network and their programmatic training programs by visiting apjn.org and also by searching for their feed on Facebook. 
Facebook. Mara and Jennifer uh, are the representatives of that program. We thank them for their time today. And thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, a program produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We also are available through several popular podcasting applications, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of of the podcast by simply reaching out to us on Facebook, or you can also contact us through email. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth on behalf of WOUB Public Media. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.